We're right in the middle of a series looking at the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. Okay? That is, what is the splendor, the majesty, the magnificence of God as he saves sinners? That's what we're examining. And we're, we're looking last week and this week at God's role, what God has done, and specifically this week, the glory of God in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was slain. We're going to get into other topics, like what is the new birth? How is the glory of God manifested in the new birth? What is repentance and faith? What is our response? Okay, so we're going to deal with those things. But this morning, we're focusing on the glory of God in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this truth today that I'm going to be preaching and teaching on, I, I, I believe beyond any other truths that I've come to know and to appreciate has done more to impact me to well up in my heart a joy and a love for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as, as I considered these truths that we're going through today was a complete mind shift in how I viewed the gospel. I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a church environment. I grew up hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. I grew up hearing about his death. But until I was presented the truths in this chapter, it was a complete mind shift in terms of how I saw the gospel and the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. This is my prayer today that you too would also be profoundly affected and see God as glorious and wonderful and lifted up and exalted in this text. Our question that we're going to be looking at this morning before we examine further the text of Revelation chapter 5. Our question is this. What did Christ's atonement achieve? Okay, what was the effect of Christ's atonement? What was the accomplishment of Christ's death? What exactly did he achieve as he died on the cross? That's the question that we're going to be asking today. Now, commonly, and most pulpits would teach that Christ's death and accomplishment was this. Christ died for the sin of all men, such that salvation is possible for all men. That is, Christ died so that we, as humanity, can be reconciled to God. You know, there is no path to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a wonderful truth, that there's only through Jesus Christ, only through his shed blood. And so when Jesus died, he made salvation possible for all men, in that every single person, who would receive that gift would be forgiven, would be justified, would be forever with the Father in heaven. It's commonly illustrated this way today, that Christ's death is a payment. You consider a court of law and you stand before the judge and you are guilty before the judge because of your sin. And then you come to the realization and you're told that someone else has paid your fine. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has made payment for you. He's paid that fine. And if you would receive that payment, then you can go free. You can go free if you've received that pardon that Jesus Christ has purchased for you. And so in this case, the glory of the atonement, the splendor and the majesty of the atonement is that Jesus Christ has offered himself for all men. That is, the glory of the atonement is that salvation is possible for every single person. And so the extent of the atonement is its glory. That's the majesty of the atonement. It's been offered for everyone and makes salvation possible for all. Now, what I want to challenge in our thinking this morning is that ideas have consequences. 
And there are some rather interesting, shocking consequences to this commonly taught truth. Okay? If Jesus Christ and his atonement accomplished, um, he died in the place of everyone such that salvation is possible for all, there's five consequences that I want to share with you this morning. The first is this. Now, this is true. We must say that Christ accomplished a potential salvation and not an actual one. In that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, no one was actually saved, but rather everyone was potentially saved. That is, salvation has now been made possible. A way has been made. There's the potential that is there. But unless that gift is received, it's just simply potential. It's not made actual. So we have to say, in, in this way, if Jesus Christ has died for all to make all men savable, then his atonement was a potential atonement and not an actual one. You can come and you can make it actual. That's the first consequence. Second consequence is this. Hell is full of people for whom Christ has died. Hell is full of people for whom Christ has died. That is, those people who are suffering in hell have had their sins paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, that truth is shocking. That truth is shocking. Their fines have been paid, paid in full at the cross. So hell is full of people for whom the wrath of God has been satisfied, propitiated through the death of Christ. He's made payment for their sins, but it wasn't received. Number three, people are being punished for sin that Jesus paid for. If Jesus died for all men such to make salvation possible for all, then the people in hell right now are paying for their sins, which Jesus has already paid for on the cross. When Jesus says it is, it is finished, the satisfaction for sin has been paid for, it's been accomplished, God's wrath has been poured out in full on him, well, it's being poured out again on those souls who are in hell. Something that I, I, I have a hard time fathoming to be true. The fourth consequence of this teaching, if Jesus has paid the debt for all, is this. Heaven, of course, is going to be populated with those for whom Christ has died. But we have to say that Christ on the cross did exactly the same thing for those in heaven as he did for those in hell. There's no difference between the work of Christ for those who are in heaven and for those who are in, he in hell. Certainly those who are in heaven are going to praise the name of Christ for his atonement, for the lamb who was slain, for them and for their sin. But the same is true of those who are in hell, if this is the case. Jesus Christ has also died for them and paid for their debt and for their sin. He's done the same thing for those who are in heaven and for those who are in hell. The fifth consequence of this teaching is that if Jesus came and died to save sinners, which we, we know he did, that's what he came to do, to die and to save sinners, we would have to say that for most people for whom Jesus died for, he failed to achieve what he set out to accomplish. He failed to achieve it. We would have to say that in great respects, Jesus 
This Jesus is an impotent savior. That his death did not accomplish that which he set out to make it achieve. For the most people whom he shed his blood for, it was of no effect. Could not save. Was not powerful. He's an underachiever. More of a failure than a victor. Limited success as a conqueror. Most of the agony and the wrath of God that he bore on the cross was wasted. Ineffective. Did not accomplish forgiveness of sin. That's the consequence of what I would think is the most common way of explaining what Christ achieved on the cross. Ideas have consequences. It seems bizarre if you think through the implications of it. I simply cannot stomach the thought of these consequences. Now, some of you will be thinking now, well, what what exactly are you saying then? Are you saying that Jesus Christ only died for some? Are you saying that on the cross, when Jesus died, that he only died for the sins of some? Is that what you're saying? And that is what I'm going to show you from the scriptures. Now, there's a flood of objections that come to our mind when we consider that. For some, the antennas go up and and you might be thinking, or maybe you've heard this before. Well, that sounds a lot like limited atonement. And that, in many circles, is a bad word, limited atonement. It sounds so nasty, doesn't it? The atonement of Christ is limited. What do you mean? You can't put limits on my Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single Christian believes in a limited atonement. Okay? Every single person believes in a limited atonement. Okay? And you can ask, well, how how can you say that? I don't believe in limited atonement. How can you say that? We all believe, if we're being faithful to the scriptures, we all recognize that not everyone is going to be saved. There are people in hell. There are people who will be judged by God. Therefore, we all believe in a limited atonement. An atonement that has, has, has been limited. That is, not everyone is going to be saved. If we believe in an unlimited atonement for the forgiveness of sins, everyone will be saved. Okay, But we all believe in limited atonement. Now, most believe it is limited as to its effect. Okay? Most believe the atonement is limited as to its effect. That is, the atonement was offered for everyone, but it's not effective for everyone. That is, the atonement was offered for all. The extent of it is so glorious. It's been offered for every single person, but yet its effect is limited. It's only effective for those who come to Christ and believe. And so in that case, the atonement is limited. It's limited not to its extent, but it's limited in in terms of its effect, in terms of its power. And so that's one case we can believe in a limited atonement. I believe, both by sound reason and by scripture, that Christ's atonement is unlimited. Unlimited as to its effect. Okay, unlimited as to its effect. That is in the atonement of Christ. It is unlimited in terms of its power to save. That is for all those for whom Christ has died, they will be saved. It's unlimited in terms of its power. The limitation comes only in God's prerogative to save those whom he has chosen to save. Like we saw last week as we looked at Romans chapter 9. We don't limit the atonement 
but rather God has his particular people who, whom he has chosen to receive. And those for whom Christ has died must be saved. They will be saved because there is power in that atonement in Christ. There is unlimited effect of Christ's atonement. We sang the song this morning, Jesus paid it all. And I love that song and I believe it. Jesus didn't pay just some of it. He didn't pay most of it. He paid all of it. There's nothing that I have to do because Jesus paid it all. And that's why that song is so great. Why we can just stand back in amazement that Jesus Christ, he paid it all. And the reason why I'm a Christian, the reason why I'm saved is because Jesus Christ has died for me and he's canceled that debt and he's exchanged the great exchange. He has taken my sin upon him and he's given me his righteousness. Now I stand before God clean, a pardoned sinner because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's powerful in the atonement. So everyone believes in a limited atonement. You're either going to limit it, limit it in terms of its effect or you're going to believe it's limited in terms of its extent to whom it applies. Those are your two, cho- two, two, two choices. It's either limited in terms of its effect or it's limited in terms of its extent. Now, perhaps you're thinking this. If the atonement is limited as terms of its extent to whom it applies, how can we share the gospel with people who don't know Christ? How can we tell people that God has loved them if if we can't say that Jesus Christ has died for them? Because so often we our evangelistic uh, training goes like this. We tell people that God loves you. And God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And all you need to do now is, is come to receive him. And you can be forgiven. He, he's, he's shown his love to you by sending his son and by dying for you. Your debt has been paid. Your fine has been paid. Now won't you just receive that? That's how evangelism works today or how we so often say it. So if we can't say that, if we don't know that, how do we communicate God's love to a dying world? But think about this for a second. How much are people going to feel the love of God when we tell them God loves you and he's died for you and he's forgiven your sin, he's paid your debt, he's canceled your fine, you just have to receive it? And they say, wow, God loves me that much? And they ask you, what about the people in hell? Well, God God loves them too and he did the same thing for them. Are they going to feel special? Are they going to feel loved? They're going to feel, what is, this God is powerless to save. His love has no effect upon me. In fact, I had a conversation with a Muslim that I'd, I'd spent many years trying to witness to this young man. He's now moved away from Calgary. But he raised this question one time to me and another Christian brother who were talking to him. He said this. He said, if Jesus died and atoned for my sins, which is the message he got um, as a Muslim, this is what Christians are telling him. He said, if Jesus died and atoned for my sins, why do I have to believe him or follow him? Why would that matter? If he's died for my sins, atoned for them, why do I need to be his follower? I, I should be forgiven. And then he said this. He said, original sin is binding, whether I believe it or not. Why is the atonement conditioned on what I do or believe? That's what he said. I'm like, wow, what a question. What a question. He realized that we are guilty of sin, that we are born in iniquity. And we, don't have, we don't have to choose that. And whether you disbelieve that or not, say, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a sinner. It doesn't matter. You're still a sinner. That's your condition. 
He goes, I don't have to believe that to make that true. So why do I have to believe or do something to make Christ's atonement for the sacrifice for sin? Why do I need to believe it to make it effective? Well, in that case, I had the friend of mine, he answered his question and it was a long and convoluted response. It was basically Jesus' death is only effective if you accept it. Jesus can only save you if you if you accept it, if you believe it. If you don't believe, then Jesus' death is of no effect to you. And in my mind, I'm thinking, may that never be said of my Savior. That we can thwart his power on the cross. Jesus is not like Santa that needs our belief to make his sled fly. He can fly it. And he can accomplish salvation on the cross. In our efforts to try to protect the love of God, we end up impugning the character and the power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his accomplishment on the cross. What about the offer of the gospel? How, how, do, we, how do we share the gospel then? Well, the truth is, we don't know those who will be saved. And so we proclaim the gospel to all, all men, all women. We go everywhere. And if you've been around this church, you understand that we love evangelism. We love to share the gospel and we go everywhere and we call people to come to a savior who is mighty to save, who will save his people, who has shed his blood for his church and he's out there and he's going to redeem and ransom his church and bring his church home in glory without spot or blemish. And so we go out there with confidence in the gospel because God who saves. We don't go out there because Jesus Christ has done something in the past and he's done all he can do now. And now it's up to these people to respond to him. No, we go out there in the name of powerful savior who has saved his people and those whom he's died for will come to him. They will believe. They will love the gospel because Jesus Christ has achieved that on the cross. So the glory of the atonement is not in its extent in how big or how broad it is. The glory of the atonement is in its effect, in that it's powerful, in that when Jesus Christ died, he saved people. It was an actual, definite, real, particular atonement. People were saved when he died on the cross. It was a real substitutionary death. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He laid down his life for his new covenant people. We're going to remember that in the Lord's Supper here this morning. He says in Ephesians 5, I laid down my life for the church to ransom her, to present her as, the, as this bride, holy and blameless, without spot, blemish or wrinkle. That's what his death accomplished. And so the glory of the atonement, the splendor of the atonement is in its effect, in its power. In that it's an actual soul-saving atonement. Now what I want to do is to show you that truth from Scripture. And from here in Revelation 5. So look with me again at Revelation 5. I want to show you from Revelation 5 how the glory of the atonement is in its effect. It's in its effect. In Revelation 5, we have a vision up into heaven. The Apostle John sees up into heaven and he sees God sitting on a throne with a scroll in his right hand. Look with me at verse number one. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him 
who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What's the significance of this scroll? The scroll that is in God's hand is sealed with seven seals. It's got contents on the inside, some contents on the outside. Typically, if a scroll is written on both sides, the outside just had an indication of what was in there, but the full document was inside. And we know from the book of Revelation that these seven seals, as they are opened, as they are broken, are God's judgment that comes upon the earth as he judges evil. And then we see at the end of his judgments, the glorious coming of the new heavens and new earth. So within this scroll is God's purposes and plans for the consummation of his glory and for his kingdom, the redemption of the earth and of all creation. And so God holds this, his plan and his purpose for all of creation in his hand. And the question becomes, who is worthy enough to open this scroll to fulfill the purposes of God in final victory over all of evil? Verses two and four says this, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So as John realized no one is found worthy to open this scroll, he begins to weep. And why does he begin to weep? It's not out of curiosity. It's because he knows this scroll contains the purposes and the plans of God and final judgment and victory. What is going to happen to the church? What is going to happen to God's people? When is sin going to be defeated and conquered? And he begins to weep. Who is going to be the one who can fulfill God's plan? And then we know it's our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5 to 8, it says this. One of the elders said to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then they began to worship. Then every creature on earth worships, as you see in the rest of Revelation 5. And so who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to fulfill God's plan for the ages? It's the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb who was slain, who is now standing. He's now risen again. And it's this, this one who has conquered, conquered. He's the one who is worthy to open the scrolls because he has conquered. So why does Christ three times here, these songs of praise in verses nine and 10 and in verse 12 and in verse 13, why is there so much praising of this lamb who was slain? Why is the question we need to be asking? Why is he worthy? You know, sevenfold worthy here. It says down in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why is he worthy of glory? 
Why is he worthy of praise? Why is he worthy of blessing? It's because he has conquered. It's because he has conquered. And it's spelled out for us in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at verse number 9. They sang a new song saying this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's why the Lord is worthy. That's why Christ is worthy. It says here, for you were slain. Now, our English translations take a little bit of a bite off that original word. But quite literally, that Greek word for slain means slaughtered. For you were slaughtered. You were viciously and brutally beaten and crucified, suffering not only the wrath of man, but the wrath of God on that cross. You were slaughtered. Killed violently. And yet his death was an accomplishment, not just because he died, but because his death accomplished something. Look what it says. And by your blood, by your death, by your slaughter, you ransomed people for God. And not only that, but you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He did it. He accomplished it in his death. And verse 10, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the first thing we see about Revelation 5 is that Christ's death demonstrates his glory, demonstrates his worth. It is his death alone is worthy to be praised and worshipped and adored. His death demonstrates his glory. The second thing I want to show you from this text is that Christ's death ransomed a people out of the world. Okay, we started this morning by asking the question, what did Christ's death achieve? What did it accomplish? Did it accomplish a potential salvation, a possible salvation? I want to show you from Revelation 5, 9 that Christ's death ransomed people out of or from the world. Look at verse 9 again. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Other translations use the word purchased. You purchased people for God, or you redeemed people for God. We know elsewhere in Scripture where it says that you have been bought for God. You've been bought with a price. Christ did that on the cross. He purchased, he redeemed, he ransomed, he bought a people for God. Now, why is that significant? It's very different than how Christ's payment on the cross is commonly conceived. Okay? It's quite different than how Christ's work on the cross is commonly conceived. This verse does not say that Christ in his death provided a way to be ransomed or provided a ransom payment that the transaction then needed to be finished. It says that he ransomed people. It does not say that Christ in his death made payment for people. It says that he purchased people. 
It does not say that he made people redeemable. It says that he redeemed people. It was not a potential atonement. It was an actual one. He ransomed people for God. Transaction complete. Not potential. Actual. And that's why he is praised. That's why he is glorified. Because of this actual, definite, powerful, redeeming atonement. Christ's atonement. When you look at it in scripture, look at these words like ransomed, redeemed, propitiated. The scriptures never put the atonement in terms of a provision or in terms of a potential. As in Christ has done this and now you need to complete that or activate it or receive it or actuate it. Never. Christ's atonement is never put in provisional or potential terms. It is always actual. This is what he did. He redeemed. He ransomed. He justified. Christ did it on the cross. Consider these verses. I'm going to go quick. You can jot down the references if you wish. Uh, Romans 5.10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How are we reconciled? By the death of Christ. He accomplished it. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. In Christ's giving, we are delivered. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Substitutionary atonement. Okay, substitutionary atonement necessitates an actual atonement. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's how I was redeemed. Matthew 1.21, it says, a promise given to Mary, to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He will do it. He will accomplish it. And he's going to do it through his work on the cross, through his atonement. In all of these cases, in every single one, Christ's atonement, Christ's death accomplishes salvation. Never in terms of potential. Never in terms of provision. Always in terms of an actual accomplishment. And this is, I mentioned a few minutes ago, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. You likely have heard that word before. It's a word that comes down from our most historic of creeds that we, as evangelical believers, believe in substitutionary atonement. And what we mean by that is that Jesus Christ has died in our place as a substitute. And because he has died in our place, our sins have been placed on his shoulders and his righteousness has been placed in our account. And so we now inherit heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he suffers the wrath of God, what we we rightly deserve. And we call that substitutionary atonement. Now, we still have that language in our creeds even today. But substitutionary atonement depends on, necessitates an actual atonement where Christ died actually for individuals to redeem them, to save them. An atonement where Jesus dies for everyone to make everyone savable is not a substitutionary atonement. He did not die in the place of anyone. He died just generally for all sins and for everyone. And it's only through our faith, only through receiving that gift, 
Could we then begin to talk in terms of substitution? But substitutionary atonement, the reason why we have it is because the history of the church has believed in an actual, necessary, definite atonement. And so our evangelical world still affirms substitutionary atonement with our lips. But this creed relies on, necessitates a particular atonement of Christ offered for his particular people, a substitution of Christ for his people. Now this verse continues. Don't want to get too sidetracked. This verse continues in verse number nine, and it says that by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Okay. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Doesn't say that he ransomed every tribe and language and people and nation, but he ransomed people for God from every tribe, language and people and nation. If you have a King James or New King James, you'll see the word out of, you know, he redeemed a people out of every tribe and language and people and nation. That is out of the human race, out of humanity, out of all these different ethnic groups, Christ in his death redeemed some from out of those groups, from them. And he actually did it. He actually accomplished it on the cross. No further conditions. All that is required has been met by Jesus Christ in his death. He redeemed that particular people with his blood. He laid down his life for the church. He laid down his life for his sheep. And we see it here in Revelation 5.9. Okay, so what we see here in Revelation 5.9 is that Christ's death is glorious because of its effect, because of what it accomplished. He ransomed people for God from or out of every tribe, tongue, language, and people. Third thing I want to show you from this chapter is in verse number 10. Verse number 10. And I want to show you from verse number 10 how Christ's death guarantees our complete redemption. Christ's death in itself guarantees our complete redemption. Look at verse 10. Not only has his blood ransomed the people for God, but it says in verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, he has done it. He has made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. The language here is not one of potential, not one of provision. It's one of actuality. Christ has accomplished this in his death on the cross. So as we ask that question, what is our confidence that true disciples of Christ will be saved in the end, that will persevere and will meet God in glory? What's the assurance of our salvation? Is it our own goodness? Is it our own willpower? Is it our own strength? Is it our own resolve? What is it? Is there something inside of us that is going to keep us clinging to Christ? None of those things. If it was up to us, every single one of us would lose our salvation. The reason why salvation will be accomplished and complete is because Christ purchased it on the cross. That's what it says here in in Revelation 5.10. Christ, by his death, by his blood, has made a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. Oh, my friends, this is a glorious truth. What assurance, what hope that our Savior is a powerful Savior. That when he sets out to accomplish the redemption of his people, he achieves it. All of what he has done, 
We are his beneficiaries. We have received mercy. We've received grace because of the powerful working of Jesus Christ on that cross. All glory and honor and praise goes to him as you see creation crying out here in this chapter. So Christ's death demonstrates his worth, his glory. Christ's death ransomed a people from out of this world. And Christ's death guarantees our complete redemption. So what should be our response to such lofty thoughts about the atonement of Christ? Well, it's right here in this chapter. Look at verse number 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then again, verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All those whom God sought were bought by the precious blood of Christ and were redeemed and will be redeemed. Jesus said it, I will save my people from their sins. And he accomplished it, all of it. Now, this whole scene in Revelation makes no sense at all if Christ's death simply made salvation possible for everyone. This whole scene in Revelation really makes no sense. Why are they all praising Christ? He did the same thing for those in heaven as he did for those in hell. Why is he worthy of all honor and glory and blessing in this chapter? His death made people savable. That's commendable. But it wasn't quite enough. It doesn't make any sense with the context. The whole chapter of Revelation 5. The only thing that makes sense of Revelation chapter 5 was that Jesus Christ died an actual death, an actual atonement, and he redeemed people from out of this world. And he's making them a kingdom and priests. And they will reign on the earth. When he cried, it is finished, he didn't mean my job is finished. He said, it is finished. Salvation is accomplished. And his people will be saved. Nothing is lacking. Nothing is to be added. So if we come back to our question, we began with what did Christ's death achieve? You have to ask yourself, is the death of Christ a work that potentially makes all people savable and saves people who are willing? Or is the death of Christ an actual atonement who saves unwilling sinners because of the power of Christ's cross and the power of his substitutionary death in their place? And they will be made willing. Why? Because Jesus Christ has died for them. Because he has shed his blood for them. Because they are his and he has purchased them through his powerful death on the cross that will accomplish his purposes. Now, I I know that as we consider this topic, there are many, probably other objections, thoughts, passages we've been thinking of. What about John 3.16? God's loved the whole world. What about um, 1 John 2.2? Jesus is a propitiation not for our sins, but the whole world. Okay. We're going to save those texts for next week. This is going to be a two-parter as we consider the atonement of Christ because I think it's an important truth to understand how we look at those texts too. But this week I want to leave you with a quote from the Prince of Preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon. Okay, This truth that I'm teaching you today, it sounds so new to our ears, but this is, this is historic. This is historic. This is a reformational truth. As we threw off the darkness of the Middle Ages and the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, and as we've gone back to the source of Scripture... 
to determine how God has accomplished salvation and recover the gospel of justification by faith alone, by Christ alone. This truth that I'm proclaiming today was well accepted. It's only a modern invention in our time where we're we're concerned about the love of God that we would tweak this wonderful truth of Scripture. So let me end with this quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says this, We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ. And so the charge will be received here too. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They say, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died so that any man, any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, Spurgeon continues, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, it is you. We say Christ died so that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Wonderful words from Charles Spurgeon. And remember, the atonement is meant for us to sing these songs of praise like we read here in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Praise Christ for his great work on the cross. Let's pray. Oh God, this truth is fraught with controversy. And yet it is so glorious. Christ's work on the cross is so effectual, effective, actual, definitive. In that when he died on that cross, he accomplished salvation. It was not a potential. It was not up in the air. It did not need anything to be added to it. But rather, when Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, he meant it. And he ransomed people for God from out of this whole earth. For his namesake, for his honor, for his glory and for his praise, we recognize he is worthy to open these seals. He is worthy to unfold your plan for this earth. He is worthy to usher in the new heavens and new earth because he was slaughtered. For his people. And God, I pray that as we consider this truth this morning, if there's anyone here that does not know the powerful salvation offered to the Lord Jesus Christ, the invitation is there to come. 
Come not to a Savior who may save, but a Savior who does save, who will save, whose atonement was effective, whose salvation is glorious. Oh God, I pray that you would send your Spirit to convict our hearts of sin and of judgment, of righteousness, that we would see the preciousness of Lord Jesus Christ and we would say, here is the Lord that I choose to follow. Here is the one who I can trust with my life because he is powerful to save. Oh God, grant us faith in Christ and in his work and in his atonement. Help us to see the glory of the cross in its effect. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.